0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 1. <clears throat> Sometimes it seems that hope is very hard to find this has been a hard year 2020 about halfway through we've had uh, a pandemic an outbreak of a virus that has seen the shutting down of our economy the deaths of many many people businesses lost loved ones dying alone unemployment rates through the roof, and it seemed like that was all that was on everybody's minds until the last couple of weeks happened, and now we're thinking about a brutal killing that occurred in the city of Minneapolis, riots in the streets, a nation torn apart, more deaths that have followed, and you look at all this, and it's really hard to know where to find hope. Many people overwhelmed with a sense of hopelessness. We've been hearing reports of possible increases in suicide rates even since the beginning of the pandemic. But uh, actually according to The Economist anyway, suicide rates have been on the increase in the United States each of the last 13 years leading up to the pandemic in 2020. It seems like we're living in a world that is more advanced, more comfortable in many respects than it ever has been before. But there seems to be one thing that a lot of people are lacking, and it's hope. It's hope. Hope is what lets us see heaven through the dark clouds. Hope is what keeps our hearts from breaking in difficult situations. Hope is what gets you up out of the bed in the morning and hope is the subject of this passage we're going to be looking at here this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We are returning to our sermon series called Roots 66. We've been moving our way through the Bible here, starting in the book of Genesis, moving toward Revelation. And we are almost to the end of this series, and we have reached now the epistles of Peter. We've been through the letters of Paul And through Hebrews, and now we're reading these two letters. Next week we'll look at 2 Peter, but there's two letters that have been written by Peter. And uh, most of you know who Peter is. This is the Peter who we've heard about in the Gospels. We see many stories about uh, the life of Peter. He was an apostle. He is also the guy who swore that he would never deny Jesus and then went ahead and did it three times. Uh, This is Peter, the guy who said, no, no, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross, and to whom Jesus turned and said, get behind me, Satan. Uh, This is a man who, after those grave failings, by the grace of Jesus was nonetheless restored to ministry. Peter is a man who knows what it's like to move from hopelessness to hope. I mean, he is a man qualified, to write on this topic, and so we should pay careful attention to what Peter has to say to us. He is the author of these two letters uh, written around 62 to 63 A.D. Uh, Peter is writing to Christians who are enduring uh, many different forms of persecution, and so we see the themes of suffering, perseverance, and of course, hope that prevail in these letters. So, Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll look to the Lord to fill our hearts with hope as we hear what he has to say to us this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Holy Spirit, come. Spirit, come. We beg of you, come and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So what does this passage tell us about hope? Where do you look if you want to find hope, if you're feeling hopeless this morning? The first thing I want to show you here is that what Peter is talking to us about is a hope that is rooted, first of all, in the past. We need to look to the past. Now, for many, when we look to the past, we, we see only pain. The past is uh, a, a litany of examples of reasons to be hopeless and discouraged. And, of course, we're seeing this a lot in our uh, nation with the, the tearing down of statues and the defacing of various monuments that are all symbols of a very painful past for many people. So we see many people today trying to distance themselves from the past, almost to kind of try to eradicate the past, and the idea is that we need to forget the past and move on to the future. We need to look ahead to progress. We need to set our eyes on a better future. But what Peter does here. Is he points our attention to something that happened in the past as the source and foundation for living hope? And you see this in verse 3. Pray, uh, Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And this living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's talking here about a real historical event that happened 2,000 years ago when a Jewish man, by trade, a carpenter from the city of Nazareth, lived in this world, on this earth, submitting himself fully to all the demands of the Father, living a perfect life, the only one who has ever done that, but was nonetheless unjustly executed, hung on a cross, crucified, died, and was buried, dead, completely dead, certifiably dead, and yet after three days, what the Scriptures tell us is that he was raised up from the dead, body and soul together, a glorious, miraculous resurrection, the most important event in all of human history, nothing more important or significant than that will ever happen. It's something in the past That is the foundation of our hope that Peter is pointing our attention to, the living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I remember riding my bike through Muncie uh, years ago, and I came across some graffiti on a wall, and the graffiti said this. It said, we live to die, which is the ultimate expression of hopelessness, isn't it? We have nothing to look forward to in our lives. We live, then we die, and then it's over. What Peter is telling us here is about a Savior who died to live. And if you want living hope, you need to put your faith in this living Savior. That's what Peter is telling us. This is where it starts. Living hope is found by looking past, looking to the past, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, This past event, however, it ends up having a present effect that you can benefit from this, and Christians have benefited from this resurrection because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead also has the ability to raise hearts from the dead, and we call that regeneration. Regeneration, you notice this still in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this power that raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit comes to us now and raises up our hearts, changes our hearts. This is what we mean when we talk about people being born again. Regeneration, born again, being made alive. These are all terms describing the same theological concept. Hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh. Spiritually dead people made spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit brings this about by the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Peter is saying. Herman Bavinck says it like this. Regeneration is not a work of human strength. It's not a product of a long gradual development of natural life, but is rather a break with the old mode of existence and the creative beginning of a new spiritual life. It is the dying of the old man and the rising of the new man. That's regeneration by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know the story in Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones? You probably heard that. All these bones lying in a valley. It's a vision given to Ezekiel. These dry bones are a symbol of death. And what we learn from this vision is that the Word came in and breathed life into these bones. And the bones kind of started moving around and rattling And rising up, and flesh and sinews came upon the bones, and the bones came together into a living creature. And that picture in the Old Testament is a picture of the reality of regeneration today for people who believe in the gospel. Now, what is the means by which this happens? How is it that people are born again? through the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And you can see the answer to that at the end of this chapter of 1 Peter, because here's what Peter says. You have been born again, regenerated, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. The word is the good news that was preached to you. So, What we see here is a picture of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. They don't know their right hand from their left. They are strangers to God. They have no ability to please him. And then the word comes. The gospel is proclaimed. The spirit joins with the word proclaimed. And hearts are changed and made alive. And people are different. They're changed. They're new creatures. And what Peter is saying is this is the living hope that we have is that this reality can take place in our world when people are regenerated by the holy spirit something makes them different there's a break from the past suddenly they have a a sorrow for their sin their sin isn't bothersome to them simply because it keeps them from doing what they want they're sorrowful in their heart because they know they've offended their creator and their savior and their god people who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they suddenly, they have an interest in the Bible because the Bible is how God speaks to us and they want to know what God has to say. And so they open their Bibles with a genuine interest. That's what happens when people are regenerated. People see Jesus not just as a, as a a religious leader who shows them how to have a good, happy life, they see Jesus as a dying, crucified Savior who gave Himself for their salvation and has risen from the dead. Regenerated people see Jesus as their hero and their champion, and all their hope is in Him. That's a sign of regeneration. That's what the Holy Spirit does to people who are born again. But you know what else happens when people are born Again. Policemen who abuse their authority are brought to sorrow over that and they repent. Authority figures who take advantage of the weak and the oppressed are overcome with a heart of compassion for the weak and the sorrowful. People who are driven by white supremacism and racism repent of their hate, They turn from it. Authorities see themselves as servants of their constituents, not as an opportunity to lord their authority over them. Citizens of nations see themselves as humbly submitting to their authorities, and they gladly do so. The oppressed and the marginalized by the power of the holy spirit and through regeneration are given the supernatural ability to forgive their oppressors that's what happens when people are born again people are changed they're made new this is the question that so many of us are asking today it is how do we fix what is broken in our world how do we fix this it just seems to be getting worse it's 2020 we're enlightened, progressive people, right? And it doesn't seem like things are getting any better. How do we fix what is broken? Well, there's a lot of ideas about that. Some people say it's an outside-in solution. Others say it's an inside-out solution. In other words, some people say it's we change society and, and culture, and once society is changed, then the individual is changed. But others would say, no, you change individuals, And once individuals are changed, then society changes. And if we want to think about this in a nuanced way, I think we have to admit that there are probably changes to be made in both of those areas. It's probably a little bit of both. But let me push the question a little further. The question is, what is the priority, though? What comes first? What's the dog and what's the tail? What's the engine and what's the caboose in that relationship? What everybody wants right now in this world and in our nation, what we really want, they won't put it in this way because we don't all think in biblical terms, but what we're all longing for is the kingdom of God on earth. That's what we want. We want a state of affairs where righteousness, peace, and justice flourish. That's the kingdom of God. How does that come? How does the kingdom of God come to earth? How does the kingdom of God flourish on earth? Where does that start? Is it outside in? Do we change society so that society forces the kingdom of God to take a primary role? John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. You Remember what Jesus says? Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom apart from being regenerated by the Holy Spirit based on the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, today, so many people, they want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. If we want kingdom to flourish in this world, we need to call people to submit their need, to bow their hearts to the king. That means as Christians, this is our main priority, friends, telling people about Jesus, calling people to faith, calling people to repent, calling people to become Christians. That's our hope. That's the living hope for this world and this life. Jay Gresham Machen, I quote him a lot, one of my heroes, here's what he says, "'It is upon this brotherhood of born-again sinners,' this brotherhood of the redeemed that the Christian founds the hope of society. He finds no solid hope in the molding of human institutions and the influence of the golden rule due to others as you would have them do to you. A building cannot be constructed when all the materials are faulty, and a blessed society cannot be formed out of people who are still under the curse of sin. The true transformation of society will come by the influence of those who have themselves been redeemed. Gospel first, friends. As people are changed, as individuals are changed, the society changes. We don't look to society to change individuals. We look to the gospel to change individuals, that people would be born again. So that's the foundation of hope that Peter gives to us, a hope that's rooted in the past, in an event that happened 2,000 years ago on Calvary. But we also do see, it's not just looking to the past, we also see that there is a hope that is only fully realized in the future. It's not a hope that's fully realized right now, it's something that we we do look ahead to. And what Peter calls it is an inheritance in verse 4 born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. He goes on at the end of verse 4. He says, this inheritance, Christian, it's, it's being kept for you. Uh, verse 5, by God's power, it's being guarded through faith for you for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. So Peter's talking about an inheritance that's in our future at the last time. The last time was when Jesus comes again to bring history to a close. And at that time, we're going to receive an inheritance. And until then, God, in his mercy and grace, is guarding it for us, for you. He's keeping it for you and for me. And Peter says, we need to look. Our living hope is, in part at least, found in this future reality, this inheritance that's promised to all of us. I received a phone call this past week, I wasn't expecting it, but uh, a phone call from a good friend of mine who's actually been incarcerated for the last 15 years. And he called me, and he's now released. And so I've been able to reconnect with him, and that's been wonderful. He's, again, been in for 14 years, and my thought is, how is this guy going to make it? What's he going to do? How's, what's he going to use for money? How's he going to get back on his feet? And well, he told me that his mother left him an inheritance. And so actually he has all of his financial needs met, at least at this point. I mean, what a blessing. Can you imagine anything more encouraging than that for a man who's been through what he has been through to come out and be able to enjoy the blessing of an inheritance that had been guarded and kept and protected for him? Well, that's what he gets to enjoy. But you know what? Even that inheritance that he has received is finite, and it's limited in many ways. But the inheritance that Peter is talking to us here about is, is different. It's much better than any earthly inheritance that you or I could receive. Verse 4, look at what he says about this inheritance in the middle. He says, it's an inheritance that is imperishable. Imperishable. It will Never die. It will never decay. It's not limited by death. It's not stopped in any way. It's also an inheritance that is undefiled. That is, it's pure. It's holy. It's not subject to corruption. It's an inheritance that we can receive with a free conscience because it has been purchased for us by our Savior. It's not limited by evil in any way. It's above reproach, this inheritance. But not only that, it's unfading. It's not going to expire. It's not going to be revoked. It's not like a subscription that runs out or a coupon that has expired. It's not limited by time. It's not limited by evil. It's not limited by death. This is the inheritance, Christian, that is promised to you that's part of your living hope that's something to hope in that's something to rejoice in no matter how bad things see as we look with our eyes to our current cultural and national situation now what exactly is the inheritance though i mean it's not we're not talking about money here friends we're talking about what is going to be revealed again on the last day when Jesus comes again. And later in 2 Peter, Peter tells us what this is. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. That's our inheritance. That's what we stand to receive. A new earth, resurrected bodies, a place where righteousness Joy, justice, and peace actually does flourish for all eternity. That time is coming. That's our inheritance. That's what we look forward to, seeing Jesus face to face, being reunited with all of our loved ones, being able to relate to one another without jealousy and envy and fear and anger and grudge-holding. It's going to be a place where there is no coronavirus It's going to be a place where there's no racism, there's no police brutality, there's no rioting, there's no looting, there's no hatred, there's no tears, there's no death. There's none of that. All purged, all gone, all cleansed. You and I stand to inherit that on the last day when Jesus comes again. That's part of our living hope. It's not just... Heart's regenerated. It's something coming in the future. Now, a critique that is often brought toward Christianity at this time is that this is the problem with you Christians, is that you've always got your heads in the clouds and you're not doing anything about what's going on on earth. You know, you're always thinking about the afterlife, but you're never thinking of this life. How is the afterlife going to have any impact on what you do and how you live right now? I mean, it's a legitimate criticism. I mean, we need to wrestle with that. It's true, you can't have the kingdom without the king, but we also shouldn't expect to have the king without the kingdom. You know, I mean, there are some Christians that like their personal relationship with the king, but they want to do nothing about issues and problems that they see in their culture and on the earth. It's both. We have the king and the kingdom. So how is it that a future hope will affect how we live in the present? Well, as an example of this, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, Making Sense of God. He's got a couple of pages where he talks about um, what sustained African-American slaves in America during, during the time of slavery. Like, what, what kept them going? How did they keep their hope alive? That's the question and historians have been writing about this and some historians have said you know they've looked at the african american spirituals and they said all all they're doing is singing about you know pie in the sky stuff and heaven and that's what made them docile and that's what made them not do anything about their situation but other historians have said no you know what it was what kept their hope alive for those slaves for many of them it was their christian faith it was their assurance of a future reality when their Savior was going to come again and make all wrongs right, when the wicked would be punished, when justice would be served. Their hope was in that. They looked to the future. They were assured it was going to happen. And it was that fixation on a future promise that sustained them in the present. And if that could sustain them through all that they have gone through, friends, I promise you it can sustain you as well. If that hope of a future reality could be their strength, it can be your strength today with whatever trials, difficulties you're wrestling with now. A hope to be fully revealed in the future. Today, right now, we enjoy present realities, forgiveness of sin, justification, adoption into the family. We've got part of our salvation, but the fullness of our salvation doesn't come until later, and we fix our eyes on that future time longing for Jesus to come again. Well, the third thing we see is that there also is a hope that can be a reality in the present. We look to the past, to Jesus' resurrection. We look to the future, to Jesus coming again. But the challenge is, what about right now? What about this afternoon? What about tomorrow morning when you wake up and face whatever it is that you have to face? I mean, that's Boots on the ground, right? That's where we want the hope. And Peter even kind of acknowledges the difficulty of this in verse 8. He says, you know, you you have not seen him, though you love him. You you do not see him now. You believe in him and rejoice. But, you know, you you can't see Jesus. He's resurrected. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. We have to walk by faith. That's not easy. But more specifically, he acknowledges in verse 6 that what makes it so hard to have hope in the present is... Trials that we all face. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see that word now? In this you rejoice, though now, right now, on the ground, in the present reality, you're overwhelmed with trials. And that might be your experience right now. I don't know what trials you might be going through, what you might be wrestling with, uh, Peter talks here about uh, various trials. You know, trials come in all shapes and sizes and forms, right? <laughs> it could be the trial of not being married. It can be the trial of being in a marriage that's hard. It can be the trial of losing your job. It can be the trial of not being able to find a job. It can be the job of, or the trial of being sick once, but it could be the trial of being sick now a second, third, or fourth time. It can be the trial of loneliness, being falsely accused, feeling friendless. Trials come in a variety of ways, right? But the way Peter is talking about this is extraordinary, right? Do you see these words, like verse 6? Rejoice. (laughs) In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. Isn't that interesting? Rejoicing and grieving can apparently happen at about the same time. You've been grieved, but you are rejoicing. He talks in verse 8. You do not see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. How can that be? That doesn't make any sense. How is it that in your trials you can actually rejoice? And I think the answer that's given to us right here in the text is because in our trials we have to know and reacquaint ourselves with the truth that our trials are not mistakes, they're not accidents, they don't come to us randomly, they're not wasted, they're not God punishing us, that in our trials, God in his wisdom and grace is at work. He's doing something. This isn't a mistake. It's not random. It's not accidental. God has a purpose. You can't really see it right now, but he's doing something in you and for you. He is at work. He's not absent. It feels like he's absent, but he's not because the Scripture tells us he's not. He's at work. And the way Peter describes this is by using this illustration of gold in verse 7. Here's why we should be able to rejoice. It's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's what would happen. People would, you know, gold, a precious metal, very valuable. It would be put in a furnace. It would be smelted, it's called. It's a way of burning away all of the impurities of the metal so that what would come out at the end is something perfect and refined. And what Peter is saying here is that this is what's going on. Your faith is like gold. It's When you're going through trials, it's like you're being put in a furnace. God's putting you in the furnace. But when you're in the furnace, God is at work. And what is he doing? He's burning away the impurities. He's burning away the warts and the blemishes that have attached themselves to your faith. You have faith, yes, you believe in Jesus, but along with that is your pride and your ugly pride is attached to your faith and your idolatry is attached to this side of your faith and your unbelief is on the underside of your faith and your self-reliance is up here on this side of your faith and your faith is carrying along these things and when you go through trials, what God is doing is he's burning those things away, eliminating them, sharpening them, shaving them off so that At the revelation of Jesus Christ, when he comes again, and he even talks here about gold that perishes, what he's saying is that one day gold's going to perish, it's going to be totally worth nothing, it's going to fade away, but what's going to be standing when everything else is gone? Your faith. Your faith in Jesus, which is much more valuable, Peter says, than any kind of material blessing you could earn have in this world. I mean, do you believe that? I mean, we live by sight so often, right? We live with our hearts attached to material blessings and comfort and money. And what Peter is saying is something much more important is going on than just making you happy and comfortable. And you should be thankful for that. You should be grateful for that. Even in your trials, God is shaping your faith. And that's what's going to last forever. J.C. Ryle, says this, there is nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every trial is a message from God. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Prosperity is a great mercy. Amen. We love prosperity. But adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. That's what God is doing right now in the trial that you're wrestling with. Refining your faith. Are you hopeless this morning? Are you more hopeful now? I I, I hope you are. As a result of hearing what God has to say to us this morning through this letter, If you're hopeless, friends, look to the past. Pick up your eyes from your news feed and all that you're hearing about what's going on in our world. Let's just turn away from that for a moment and look to the past. Look to what the Scriptures tell us about what happened 2,000 years ago when the man Jesus Christ died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Fix your eyes there. And look for the Holy Spirit to change hearts as you tell other people about that. Look to the past, but also look to the future. You've got a glorious inheritance coming your way. And it can't be lost because God, the creator of the universe, is guarding it for you and waiting for the time when you will be reunited with him. Our sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. Fix your eyes there, but then also, friends, look to the present. Rejoice with a joy inexpressible in all your trials and the knowledge that God is making you fit, preparing you for an eternity with him and with all his people on the glorious new heavens and the new earth on righteousness, peace, and justice will reign forever and ever. It is true, friends, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. So, let's get ready to sing that. Father, we thank you for the hope you give us in your word. Lord, where else can we look? You have the words of eternal life, and you have the words of hope for hopeless people like us. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.